You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the Bugs episode from Season 2, Episode 7, Schrodinger's Bomb. Episode synopsis. Dr. Newman and his daughter Cassandra visit at Gunpoint, an archaeological site in the country of Naobi. They are brought before strongman General Malik, who hopes to take control of the country. He's got lots of Bactrian gold artifacts, and they've got weapons, including the mythical super explosive Red Mercury, only it's not mythical. Looks like a deal can be done. Back in London, Roz visits Dr. Newman and his daughter, pretending to be royalty, hoping to trade gold for arms. She is, in fact, working on behalf of the Bureau of Weapons Technology. Her cover is blown. Cassandra escapes, and Newman manages to secure the vault and engage all the security protocols. In short, as long as everyone remains outside the building, it won't blow up. If it does blow up, it will destroy any evidence in the vault. Without any evidence, there's no case to charge Newman. It's a catch-22 situation. Look it up. Not really a Schrodinger's cat situation. Meanwhile, the prison warden in charge of Jean Daniel is very nervous. There's been a hostile takeover of his prison, and he's afraid his job is on the line. He asked Jean Daniel to be a model prisoner to show how well he runs the prison. The pieces start to come together. Malik is in the country just prior to a conference back home that will carve up the country, leaving him out. He may want these weapons to kill off the competition. Ed and Beckett find Cassandra's car and determine that it's been carrying an unknown form of mercury and Californium-252. That could be the mythical red mercury. And if so, those are just the things you'd need to build a neutron bomb. Malik's plan becomes clearer. The new owner of the prison has arrived, and it's Jean Daniel, along with Cassandra and Newman. They use the opportunity to escape. Roz is captured by Malik and Jean Daniel. They head to the building where we discovered that the code to disable the bomb was under Newman's hair in the form of a barcode. The vault is open, the red mercury secured, and a trap is set to kill Ed and Beckett. They escape and track the still-captive Roz to a ship carrying dioxin. Malik will slip the red mercury out, surrounded by tons of lethal poison. Jean Daniel has kept his part of the deal. He's delivered the red mercury and Roz, who will be forced to build the neutron bomb. Malik pays up in the form of the Bactrian gold artifacts that the Newmans wanted. It's just that Jean Daniel didn't want the gold. He wanted the dull stuff that was stored with the antiquities. Niobium-5, a rare, newly created radioactive material that was apparently somehow stored for thousands of years in a sealed royal tomb, along with the gold. He feels double-crossed, much like the audience at this moment. Malik and Jean Daniel independently decide to kill each other. Threatening to blow up the red mercury and spread dioxin all over London, if they don't let him leave, Roz and Ed manage to get the red mercury out before it explodes. The red mercury explodes in a very lackluster, by bug standard, explosion. Jean Daniel kills Malik and <laughs> escapes. 
Later, we see Jean Daniel in the royal tomb, coveting the Niobium Five. All right, I'll give you first shot. What do you think of this episode? Well, it's it's unusual to see the Bugs team leaving the um, East End of London. You know, usually they are around the Isle of Dogs and. So when the episode's opener was set in the Middle East, I thought, wow, this is, you know, we're going to get some globetrotting in here. And actually, when you see Roz going in and, and pretending to be this princess, you think it could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not until you kind of see outside that, oh, yeah, right, it's all going to be, it's all going to be set back in London again, which is kind of, it's fine. I'm not complaining. That's it. That's the show's thing. It was just it's their path. I had I had a I had a surprise. I had a surprise, but um, obviously you did you didn't have a surprise because you did correctly predict last week, as far as I could tell, purely on the basis that Stephen Gallagher writing this one that we would get a an arc story, even though mm-hmm. we're only on episode seven, and uh, it it kind of was more than i expected in the sense that it sort of moves the jean daniel thing from being a scheming convict back to being a, a criminal mastermind yeah, yeah. yeah with his with his freedom and i i did i did kind of feel like i was enjoying the the story a lot more before the jean daniel arc kind of <laughs> imposed itself on this one so I, I have I have mixed feelings about it. I I really don't remember from seeing Bugs the first time round, and bearing in mind I didn't see many of the episodes, or I missed many mm. of the episodes. Um, I probably wouldn't have followed this arc story anyway, but I didn't remember that there was this arc story, and I thought it would kind of be a bit Bad Wolf based on what we've seen so far, in the sense that there have been episodes that are basically standard standalone Bugs episodes with a Jean Daniel scene crammed on the end so that we don't forget there is this whole background arc mm. story going on and those kind of things make me think well pff, yeah what's the point but on the other hand i would probably have preferred it in this case <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me i i tried to jot this down because i, I was having a little trouble i, I just I, i've kind of laid out what i think was supposed to happening be happening here and i just want to see if i'm if i'm on base here so the plan Jean Daniel's plan is to mm-hmm. obtain Niobium Five and to get out of prison. To do this, he buys the prison. He employs Newman and his daughter to obtain Bactrian gold artifacts from a heretofore unopened tomb thousands of years old. By selling computerized guns and a super high explosive to a local warlord, the warlord will combine those super explosive and radioactive elements to make a neutron bomb and wipe out his rebels. And Jean Daniel has included Roz as part of the deal as the bomb maker, who was only caught by accident at some point during the course of this story. The, the warlord's also... This is incidental. He's going to take the explosive out of the country in a dioxin-laden freighter just for cover. Now, and then it comes to John Danielle never wanted the gold in the first place. He wanted the niobium, which was apparently stored with the gold. But how could he have known it was there if the tomb was sealed for thousands of years? And in the end, he just goes to Niobe to the abandoned crypt and collects the discarded Niobium 5 
anyway. Also, the plan has absolutely nothing to do mm-hmm. with the vault, the titular vault in this story. <laughs> I just, it's like, this is really all over the place. And it, when, when that scene comes at the end where Malik says, here's your gold. And, and he's like, where's the stuff I wanted? Like, was there ever any indication that anybody said anything about the other stuff? They're all going on about the Bactrian gold, the Bactrian gold, the Bactrian gold. You got the Bactrian gold. Why are you upset about this? Why didn't you ask for the other stuff if you wanted it? Well, the impression I got was it was clever criminal mastermind stuff where you put one over on your compatriots by pretending you want the obviously valuable thing when actually you want the less valuable thing and if they realized what they were handling, then they might double cross you or try and realize a higher price for it or whatever. Um, obviously, it wasn't that clever because the rather obvious pitfall did in fact occur. Well, but... why would they try to smuggle the stuff you didn't want into the country? I mean, there's risk associated with this, right? I mean, if, if let's say yes, there's an equal they, amount of gold. The whole point is they, are, they, are, they, are, they need, he needs a smuggler. He needs smugglers to to bring i mean i i don't know how he's going to bring it in himself obviously he is going to have to do that now and presumably we will see that in a future episode but he needs smugglers to bring it in and he needs them to bring it in without knowing that they're bringing it in so he needs them to be thinking they're smuggling something else that that was my assumption i agree it's not it's it's not crystal clear it's not totally explicit yeah i and i, I i'm i'm you know thinking in terms if i was a smuggler Let's say that uh, I had this cache of stuff. I had these pearls and I had a couple of lead balls that had all come from the same place. And and somebody says, oh, I'll pay you a bunch of money for those pearls. You just have to get them into the country. I'm not going to carry. I'm not going to try to smuggle the lead balls in. That's you. You didn't you didn't ask for them. I'm not going to give them to you. And the risk, the more I smuggle in, the greater the risk of getting caught. So for well, such a brilliant mastermind, he should have thought of that one right off the bat. It's like, he's not I'm going not, to bring the stuff you don't want. That's silly, but I'm not sure that's quite the situation that we were presented with in this example, because I, I got the impression that general, what's his name had gone out of it. his way to clean, clean, clean up as he puts it, the gold. In other words, in other words, he's he's put in additional effort, which he thinks John Daniel will be pleased about, in order to separate them. John Daniel has obviously assumed that he wouldn't bother. There was something funny about his line um, about not bringing the dull stuff or something, but yeah, it it still it it was yeah, and and doesn't didn't Beckett at some point say Naobium Five is newly created? newly discovered <clears throat> substance and yes h- how the heck is that in a x thousand year old tomb or that anyone knows about yeah, it well that was that was the point sealed tomb exactly yes that was the point so but but we we didn't get an answer to that i mean no. it wasn't that there was an unsatisfactory answer to that that was obviously a mystery that is carrying over well i suppose but it strikes me as a mystery that's not going to have a good any good way of answering it if that seal was indeed unbroken that tomb is thousands of years old 
and there is well, no it wouldn't way be much of a good mystery it. if it didn't. If it didn't, I mean, the point the point is to get you curious, to make you curious about how that it is possible. And if it was, it didn't too make me curious. Possible, it didn't make me curious. It made me think. It made me Except think. Except you are still that's asking about thought. it. Well, I'm asking for the benefit of the podcast, but from the benefit of watching the show, this is like, wow, that's just a gaping flaw. <laughs> that's not a mystery. That's but a it, flaw. It's, de- it's designed to be something that is extraordinary. It's like, a, it's like a, the writer as a magician doing a trick that appears to be impossible so that the audience are amazed. Um, well, I suppose it's slightly different oh, because the writer's oh. trick is, is revealing how such a thing is possible. But it in, it, essentially, <laughs> it only creates the suspense if it is something that you can't immediately guess. So that would be like a trick, like let's say you create this sort of screen in your prison cell that looks like it's showing what you're doing behind it, but in fact it's actually a a TV screen playing a (laughs) pre-recorded sequence. uh, Shouldn't bring up magic tricks when they had that piece in this episode. Which also made no sense because well, that, one that's that's a good example of it. It's a very obviously guessable illusion, so it doesn't and I, intrigue. I have in been sense. I have been impressed, and impressed is is a, a very probably unfairly used word here, uh, but at least struck by the fact that the guard in this prison didn't appear to be a complete idiot throughout the previous episodes <laughs> until today. <laughs> Why do you keep beckoning me from that? No, I don't need to come into your cell. You're a prisoner. Pound sand. I, I, uh, I, and why did he need to escape like that? I mean, Cassandra, he's bought the stinking prison. Cassandra's in the governor's office. She could have literally just ordered him to the governor's office or released the things or just, just. And he says, Scott, I do have a question for you. I want to make sure that I'm not treading like last time when I assumed that they were working for the government just because they used the word department. Uh, Bureau of Weapons Technology, would you say that's HM government or is that a private corporation that just happens to call itself a bureau? Well, is it a fair assumption that Roland is still working for the same outfit he was working for before was well, that the same guy we've he seen appeared before? in um yeah in episode two of season one assassins inc okay i mean okay. i i ask because i, I mean it, it seemed like a similar area he was he, he was pursuing a high-tech weapons dealer so i don't i don't okay. have a recollection of them mentioning the bureau of weapons or the bureau of weapons technology they keep they seem to keep interchanging this. I don't remember them mentioning the Bureau of Weapons Technology in that, but I did think it was fairly explicit that he was working for a government department. So by putting two and two together, the fact that he is working for the, the Bureau of Weapons Technology makes me think that, yeah, he is he, he is working for a government department. The, the, the Bureau is a government department. I think we may think we may get a more definitive answer on this since episode nine of season two is named the Bureau of Weapons. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm guessing that Jean-Daniel will buy that next. Um, <laughs> so, 
since um, the government apparently sells off everything, including their prisons. Um, okay, let's talk about their prisoner, their prison system. Do you have private prisons in the UK? Yes. Okay. Obviously, we have them. I sent you a note the other day. We have them here, and they are uh, a, a, a stain on the idea of criminal justice, in my opinion, because, of course, they emphasize the profit of running a prison. And that's a, a, a situation that, you know, if, if running a prison is for profit, then prisoners are an asset and you hoard assets. Therefore, there's no incentive to get them out of prison or to do other more enlightened uh, remediations. And so uh, I could see this as Not being sure a thing. Not assets because you can't sell them. You get paid by the person, though. Well, that depends on your contract. Well, okay, over here, that's how it works. You're paid by the prison. I mean, the way the way the prison is set up could de could define those things in terms of uh, rehabilitation or whatever. Um, the, the 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 whole we we touched we touched on the fact that I thought what we were looking at was a private entity in an earlier episode, and I mm -hmm. thought it might be having a pop at the idea of privatization of prisons which is not an idea to to be clear that i am in favor of um so we can agree on that but what i find very very strange about what they actually take a pop at in this episode is the idea of a of a prison and yeah i mean it does have assets but i think for example the 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 building and the security systems are assets and so the question of how you might be able to realize those well it's it doesn't it doesn't make sense you are you prisoners your customers who's who are your customers oh see that's the that's the beauty of it the the people who the government is your customer well that's what happens in reality that is what happens in reality and this didn't seem to take account of the fact that the government is the the government is is the customer who you are as a prison provider you are bidding for their contract as part mm -hmm. of that bidding process you are going to make contractual commitments to meet the government's requirements and yep. in a in amongst all of that stuff is surely going to be things about what happens if your company is taken over like you're yes. not operating in a in a space that is completely free of any kind of regulatory oversight whatsoever right yeah it had to be vetted the, the takeover has to be vetted in some way you, you you can't transfer a contract like that without well i don't i don't know a lot about how prison contracting works but on the other hand the, the kind of the the public sector procuring services from from private companies and outsourcing things that you know one once upon a time would have always been done entirely in-house that that is commonplace since the the thatcher era it was well established by the 90s there would have been countless examples of that that kind of outsourcing and there are flaws in it there are flaws that you could legitimately satirize but this is just this is just a mickey mouse concept the idea yes. that you could buy a prison and all of its prisoners out i mean Marcel explicitly says he had to outbid bid two, two other crime. criminal cartels. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, that's that's why you have to have 
I, I'm sure there are provisions in contracts about takeovers and they have to be acceptable and they have to meet the same standards and they have to, uh, and I'm, I'm, and I'm guessing, but I mean, there are, there are rules associated with criminal justice, at least in the United States, that if you become involved in it in any capacity, then you have to meet the standards of background checks and, you know, disclosure that are required to handle criminal justice records and things. And so they're just, just sure we could say Jean Daniel has created a corporation which he doesn't appear to be part of, but actually is. And so they've snuck it by, but it, it really is just, it really, Mickey Mouse is a very good term for it. When they did that, it's like, really? This is what you're, all right, fine. Um, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I think your point is, is spot on. The, the, in this country, there are fitness tests that you have to pass to prove that you are a suitable person to own a newspaper. I mean, okay, it's a fairly low bar when you look at who owns <laughs> newspapers, but nevertheless, it it would it would probably, you know, it it would prevent a a, a serving convict in a prison from <laughs> taking ownership oh. of a newspaper. So if you if you know if you think that applies to the media well goodness me surely it's even more important in the criminal justice system yeah i would, I would hope so and and so here's another thing and, and maybe this is part of the pop at the private sis, prison system i don't think it is i think this is just really bad shorthand but did we not have newman arrested by the bureau of weapons technology and they were talking about charging him, but they couldn't because they didn't have any evidence and the evidence might be in the vault and et cetera, et cetera. And then without the evidence in the vault, they're not going to be able to, to charge him. How is it he ended up in prison? Maybe I'm, again, this is maybe a thing I don't understand is different between the UK and the United States, but jail and prison aren't the same thing. Aren't they? The police can put you in jail and hold you but you're not going to prison until you've been convicted is that right i thought jails meant prisons but you mean they just mean police holding cells basically yeah yeah okay yeah, i think well, you like, can yeah, be sentenced no, to stay time in a in a in a jail you know a judge might give you a 30-day lockup in the jail but maybe i i don't know that's you know that might be back in the 60s or the 50s but but yeah no there's a prisons are okay, filled with well, people who have been convicted and jails are filled with people who've been arrested so Not so quick same. Qu quick kind of um very 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 basic overview for US listeners well international listeners and about the UK system and I say very very basic in fact I should say England and Wales um very very basic because I don't know anything about it but you know I watched the bill so you have within police stations you have cells for mm -hmm. holding people who have been arrested and there are very strict rules about how long you can hold someone who has been arrested depending on what they have been arrested for before you actually charge them and so after that time has elapsed unless you can get uh, a magistrate to agree an extension um, which again is is within a very strict parameter you either have to release them or you have to to charge them and then 
when you know once someone is charged then they might be transferred to a prison uh to await trial if they cannot get bail um so what we're talking about here is a is a prison but and, and i and i i don't think he would have been taken to the prison just because he had been arrested you know i think he would have had to have been charged and then my question would be whether he would be in the same part of a prison because we have different like grades of prison there's higher security prisons and more right. open prisons and so whether he would be on the same wing or even in the same prison as mm. someone who had been convicted of the things that Marcel had been convicted of, given that they were arguing about the much more kind of minor charges that they didn't think they would be able to get to stick anyway. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's there because he threatened to blow up a building. I think that might be a crime. Yes, but it, I, I, I guess my question is whether if they, if they were to charge him with that and he were not yet convicted, whether that, whether the status of that crime, which, you know, is essentially the kind of phoning in a threat level crime, is the same as those of Marcel, who I think did quite a lot of actual blowing up and yeah. killing things and destroying property and all the rest. Yeah, I, I it, it didn't make a lot of sense until you find out they're all in it together. But of course, of course they were. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And, and you know, that's that's the arc, right? That's what we've been building up to, is his prison break. How is he going to get out of prison? And now we know. He got, he he impressed the warden. He made a bunch of money for them to get him off his guard. He bought the corporation out. <laughs> and then he brought people in, and he had to actually still break out of his cell to get to the... Yeah, it. I, I agree that John, Marshall, uh, John Daniel should not have... Uh, probably been in this episode <laughs> but um there we go okay i have to uh, uh the other thing i have to do and because i wanted to have some fun with this episode i kind of enjoyed it i mean again it, it rolls along at a it rolls along at an entertaining pace and yeah, and, yeah. And daring do and whatnot but it does kind of uh yeah, but, but now can you tell me when was it that britain went to the metric system was it 1965? Uh, I I got to admit that's before my time. But your lifetime then? I can been, tell you. I can tell metric. you when. I can tell you when we decimalized the currency. I'm pretty sure that was 72. Okay. First off, this is red mercury, and in it, in this shell, we have one thousandth of a gram. Do you mean a milligram? <laughs> yes. Right? Do you mean a milligram? <laughs> it's like okay. Now, now here's here's the thing. Like I said, do you remember the episode uh, with Arachnos on Doctor Who, and we figured out yeah. how much water it took to fill the Thames and fill the hole to the center of the Earth and whatnot? I, I kind of felt the same way about this episode. So, so here is my here's my thought. Beckett and company are able to identify through some sort of magic spectral analysis device to determine that it's some unknown form of mercury. So. I'm going to attribute it to the properties of mercury just because it's, it's as close as we can get. It's got to be close red. enough for it's their red. Device. Yeah, but it's red. But it's close enough that they can identify it as a, some form of mercury. Mercury is weighs 13.5 grams per cubic centimeter. 
to CC. I took a look at those containers filled with red mercury and I did some back of the napkin calculations. And <clears throat> my first shot at a calculation came up pretty darn close to being those being one liter or a thousand cc's volume. There are at least 30 of them, which means there are 30,000 cc's of red mercury, which is uh, 405 kilos or 405 million times more explosive than what was in that shell that blew the wall down in the crypt. The explosion when the van blew up was lame. It was lame by bug standards, but really it was, but 405 million times larger than what we saw in the tomb is what we should have gotten. And I am very disappointed. Very disappointed indeed. In this it was, FX it was an ex, it was an explosion that shouldn't have happened, or it was an expl it, it was an explosion that should have happened after they had somehow detached the red mercury, because the fact that we see that explosion happens, there is there is no way it can be as impressive as it should be, given the threat right. that it is supposed to represent. Um, if, That's the you know, mythical if we, if red mercury. It, yeah. Well, it should it should it should be taking out an entire area of the city, basically. And yeah. That, so so that that the the scale of that kind of thing that can only happen by them really failing big time. And this is not the the kind of show where they fail big time. So actually, it makes the red red mercury look naff. So the way in which they they should and initially they did convey the the kind of the the seriousness of the red mercury and, and give it the dramatic impact is through their reaction to it and never showing us what it can really do in quantity because anything like that is going to be an anticlimax. Yeah. Also, <laughs> speaking of anticlimax, how about that gun? Micro computer controlled targeting and in flight error correction. That thing missed two times out of three when they shot it at things in this story. Yes. Same problem. Because that... of the in-flight error correction. <laughs> <laughs> there is something else about the gun. I, I You might be able to guess it. Uh, is it the laser It's a projectile sight? weapon. Yes. No, it's a projectile weapon. And we have already moved on to things that fire energy beams in the early... I mean, I complained oh, right. about it then, but this is this is the problem. However advanced you make a projectile weapon now, it's going to look a bit naff because they were proper space sci-fi tasers. And Fair enough. this is an old-fashioned pistol, basically. But it can outperform a rifle on the battlefield as hmm. long as you want the bullet to go around your target. <laughs> <laughs> Also, and you can have a mirror flash the laser back in your eyes and blind you. The the, the again the problem with with um, the point about how you know quick before she thinks of shooting out the petrol tank is how how feeble a an adversary does that make her because she's she's I mean first of all she could have done that straight away and they wouldn't have been having that conversation because they'd have been busy burning to death but. Secondly, she's already shot twice, and she's still not thought of it. So it's hardly like they're they're besting someone who is terribly good at their job. Okay, two things. One, now that you mention it, if they'd hit the 
the gas tank, the explosion would have been as big as the red mercury explosion. And the red mercury explosion should have blown up the gas tank. <laughs> so there should have been an even better expert. That's, that's one. And the second is she's as feeble an opponent as Ed and Beckett are because they blind her and incapacitate her and they do not go take the gun away from her, secure her, incapacitate her in any further way. They just completely and absolutely ignore the person who's trying to kill them once they temporarily blind her. It wasn't their best performance either. In fact, when when she showed up later in the episode in the car, I'm like, didn't they do something with her? <laughs> Anything? I know they were in a hurry to get in the building, but still. <clears throat> that that just seems like, oh, I've sort of incapacitated the guy who's trying to kill me. Maybe I should stop them from trying to kill me again. But all right. I did try to scan the barcode, viewers. <clears throat> I really did. I tried very hard freeze frame that barcode and scan it with my iPhone. And it wouldn't even detect it as a proper barcode. So I'm not saying that's as good as the security system in this building at detecting barcodes. Just saying. I was really hoping there was an Easter egg in that barcode. But uh, <clears throat> maybe if this comes out on Blu-ray someday and they remaster it, perhaps we'll be able to uh, to figure out what well, the barcode they're says. They're bound to now. The resurgence of interest in the show that these podcasts are going to produce. I think it's only a matter of time. <laughs> I guess. I, I have to say, um, I mean, I, I kind of enjoyed the episode too. It was an episode with a number of things that irritated me some of which we've covered some still to go <laughs> nevertheless the the kind of key code tattooed on his head and hidden by his hair when they're all going how how can he input this stuff i did think that was a lot of fun it was yes it was a fun idea it was it's was kind of like uh, i hope i hope he doesn't start going bald naturally <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Like that receding hairline has begun to hit the barcode. <laughs> Maybe this well, wasn't such a great idea after all. He must have. He, he must have been. Well, any time he went out, I suppose you've always got hats, haven't you? But um, any time he went out in public, he would have had to make sure the chin strap was pretty firmly in place because he couldn't afford to have it blowing off while he's still got a bit of fuzz and it's not properly covered. <laughs> I I did think it was kind of funny when he he shaved it off and. Okay. To be fair, the head we saw was the head of a naturally bald man. It it did not look like somebody who had just taken a razor to his head in a haste. It it looked, you know, the, the fringe looked pretty natural. And uh, he, so he puts his head up there and it can't scan it. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'll, I'll try shaving it a little bit more. There was nothing on his head when he did that. And he shaved a little bit more. What if he had nicked himself? <laughs> doing that there's a little blood dripping down messing up the bar yeah it was it was amusing but it was i was and i was so glad that the warden had that conveniently for them to take with them i presume as part of jean daniel's brilliant mastermind strategy <laughs> uh, he's going to be shaving because of his interview with a new guy so there will be a razor so don't worry we got that one covered <sighs> yeah why were bugs brought in on this there was a line in it that was something about it i can't i can't remember the exact line i should have made a note of it because it did 
sort of leap out to me at the time. But the implication was that it was commonplace for the Bureau and presumably other government departments to bring in consultants. Oh, is this the line about you have guys that have a tendency to take over or something like that? No, no, it wasn't that. I think that was specifically about the Bugs team. Yeah. I I, I think I think it was more a, a kind of general thing. Again, it's this thing we've always we, we've talked about previously, um, where the world of bugs is a world in which the state where there is one plays a very, very minimal role. And part of that seems to be the bureau, which I am still going with. It's a it's a it's a it's the very least a, a quango or something. There's there it, it's an arm of the state, um, but it has not got enough directly employed personnel to do all the work it's in, it's there for. So it's hiring in consultants to provide the expertise that it lacks in house. So what they lack is the expertise to send a person undercover because that's what this was seem to be what they've been brought in to do well presumably you know you bring them in for bugging and things like that but well it wasn't just putting her undercover my assumption was that that was part that was the means to getting the information that our heroes were supposed to be able to interpret because the point about this bureau i mean whether it's the bureau of weapons or the bureau of weapons technology actually matters because the bugs team can help them if they're talking about high tech, because clearly, you know, if if, if they, they wouldn't have experts on that, criminals and gun runners who are using high tech weaponry, then they they would be able to help in those circumstances, but they would be unable to help where we're just talking about, you know, AFT type, you know, gun running Kalashnikovs or something. <laughs> All right. Uh... Bureau of Weapons Technology just sounds to me like they ought to have some people on staff that... And if this is the same guy, I just didn't recognize him as being the same guy from from Series 1. But, you know, they seem to kind of know all about this stuff at the time. So, I... I, Yeah. Yeah. Roland Blatty. It it just seemed seemed like pretty tenuous link as to why Team Bugs was on this. Another question, and... Well, it seemed it did seem te- tenuous. I think we discussed it in Assassins Inc., but we we were at a point in the show where we didn't necessarily have the context to realise that them working for a government department in that way was actually quite atypical. It, it was presented yeah. in that instance uh, as Roland bringing in the team because of a pre-existing friendship with Ros. So a favor from a mate whereas here it is much more implied that they use that they routinely use consultants and i i inferred from that that these were not the only consultants that they use yeah i i yeah i agree with that absolutely agree with that um speaking of doing their consulting work they put a tracker on cassandra's car and yet when she escapes they don't bother trying to track it for quite a while they have they they arrest the guy they go back to their headquarters they have a little discussion about schrodinger's cat they do all sorts of stuff and then it's only later that they go well i think we better go find cassandra's car it's like wouldn't that be priority one 
but no. And and the other thing, and this is weird, and it's also kind of fun for me. They put a tracker on her car. We never see her car until they find it in a parking lot. It never moves. It's just, oh, there's the car in the parking lot. And that's a hell of a nice car. That is an old Porsche 356, which I, I will say I learned to drive on a Porsche 356B. Um, I couldn't tell which model year that was, whether it's an A, B, C, whatever. But it's a it's a lovely old pre-modern Porsche style car. And it, I'll take it, your word for that. I can't remember the color. So it was gray. It was a darkish gray in the in okay the, gray in gray this, car right a gray I'd car yeah gray car. I you know I I I would recognize it because we had one for you know thirty years in my family and it's just instantly recognizable vehicle to me and and rare it's not a very common car anymore because they stopped producing them in about sixty six so uh, you know it's it's an antique it's just kind of odd that they trotted out an antique Porsche to for one scene on a rooftop, you know, <laughs> and, and never even drove it in the, in the course of the, of the episode. It just Maybe they couldn't afford the insurance. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the thing is, it, I love that car. And like I said, I did learn to drive on that car. It had a top speed of about, well, I don't know, 85 miles an hour. If you really got it on a run, it it's not, like a speed demon. What it was, was incredibly tight hugging the road. You could probably pull a 90 degree turn at full speed in that car and not even feel like you shifted. It, it really hugged the ground. It was, it was very, very maneuverable. And in that respect, it was fun to drive, but it wasn't particularly sporty vehicle. It just kind of looks it, but anyway. Um, I, I appreciated seeing it, but I, I would have liked to have seen more of it in the episode. Uh, and it's just kind of odd, right? Oh, yeah, we already put a tracker on her car. So they knew it was her car. They found it before the show started. She left in that car. None of that is, sh- it's not needed. But at the same time, it's like, well, they could have just put her in a four-door sedan, uh, the, the rental car, and stuck it up there instead of instead of trotting out something a little rare, I guess. So was this, was this a nice fit for Schrodinger's cat? Yeah. I want to talk about Schrodinger. I mean, the, <laughs> the red mercury, the red mercury is kind of the, the sci-fi element in this, but obviously if you're going to talk about Schrodinger, you're doing some quite advanced science. I mean, you're into your quantum mechanics and yes, I want to talk about Schrodinger, but I'm a bit tentative in talking about it because I thought this was a terrible fit, but I might let that you was have a terrible a fit. explaining why. It was a terrible fit. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the thing that got me the worst was, the, I mean, it's lovely that, that Roz has a slideshow ready to go on her computer to explain Schrodinger's cat. But when she says, you know, you put a cat, and some poison in a box. And then it's a question of probabilities of whether or not the cat's alive. It's like you've completely failed to mention that the poison is controlled in a vial that might or might not be broken by a randomly decaying radioactive element. So you've missed the entire point of not knowing what the state of the cat is in the box. Yes. 
by leaving that out. And I, and (laughs) I, I think, I think we, you know, we have to explain, we have to explain the fact that what Ros says would apply to literally anything in a box. Yeah, it would, any evidence is like, box. is and there evidence know, you in don't this know file cabinet? Box. Yes. Well, it's 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 whatever. But it but you know, if there is a tomato in my fridge, and I don't know whether that tomato is mouldy or not until I open the fridge, there is nothing terribly profound about that statement. And the same no. thing applies to putting a cat in a box with some poison that is going to be um, controlled or, or, or potentially broken open by some ordinary, but, you know, apparently random device. Unpre- unpredictable, shall we say, because, I mean, mm. the, the point is within classical physics, you might be, it, with enough information, you might be able to predict whether the vial gets broken or not before you open the box and find out whether the cat is dead or not. And so the key difference, and this is where this this is where I kind of I struggle a bit because I find it really hard to get my head around quantum mechanics. Right. But what we are talking about is a thought experiment to try and explain one of the very, very weird things about quantum mechanics and the way it differs from classical physics. And that is the principle of superpositions, that you can have things in quantum states, in, in that, that they can be in a superposition of quantum states. But then you have the measurement problem, which is that when you actually observe it, it... it um, the waveform collapses. Collapses, yeah. It the the waveform collapses, if you like. But it 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 is it is either in one um, classical physical state or another. And so the the idea is, as you say, the the file is controlled by a decaying radioactive isotope, and therefore you have something that is in a quantum state controlling something that is actually recognisable within the physical world, i.e. a dead cat, or possibly not dead cat. We don't know. That is the point. And the the thought experiment, it, it it's not designed to be carried out. There's a wonderful, wonderful sequence in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency where Dirk goes on about Schrodinger's cat as if it was a real experiment. It's not designed to be an experiment that is carried out. It's designed to be a thought experiment that shows how utterly, um, or apparently at least, preposterous this notion of superimposed quantum states is, because you have to conclude that until you open the box and look at the cat, the cat is both alive both and, dead. Right and dead. Yeah, yeah, that's, and and none of that is, none of that has anything to do with this this situation and the reason i mentioned a file cabinet is because you know we are specifically talking about evidence you don't know if there's any evidence in the file cabinet unless you open the file cabinet and that's really all there is to it it has nothing to do whether or not the file cabinet's going to explode if you try to open it it just simply is you know when they were trying to put that on this and the fact that they make this the title of the episode it just so doesn't work. And, you know, at one point, Roz calls it what he's set up here is the perfect dilemma. There might be evidence, but if we 
try to get to the evidence, we will destroy the evidence. Okay, perfect dilemma. Catch-22. That's yes. where that comes. I mean, if they should have called this the Catch-22 bomb or something. But, but I guess they wanted to try to explain Schrodinger's cat on quantum superimposition badly. But they didn't. They didn't even touch on quantum superposition. I mean, this is a strange thing because they don't actually talk about Erwin Schrödinger. They talk about Schrödinger's cat, and we are supposed to believe that Ed knows about Schrödinger's cat. And I I guess this is part. Not Einstein's dog, apparently. But but Beckett doesn't know about Schrödinger's cat, even though Beckett is more appears to be more scientifically literate, and. Yet, and this is the really peculiar thing, although Beckett doesn't know about Schrodinger's cat, and although Roz doesn't explain that it has anything to do with Erwin Schrodinger being a quantum physicist, he immediately associates Schrodinger with Einstein. So someone else who is is connected with these kind of very... Uh, highly theoretical and yet massively important theories that, you know, essentially fundamentally changed our understanding of physics. In order to make that association, surely he has to know something about Erwin Schrodinger, the man. And yet we are supposed to understand he has that much biographical information about him and has never heard of this, his most famous thought experiment. Yeah, I think, I think, I don't know that she ever calls him a physicist. I I, I think there's there's very very little reference to who he is or or why why there would be any connection between this thing that they've just mentioned and Einstein. Yeah, it was uh, had me doubting that whether or not it really was Einstein's dog or not. (laughs) Just just for a moment. um, You know, I I presume Einstein's dog traveled at the speed of light. I never got older. So um, he, uh, he'll live forever at the speed of light. Could they have just cut the power to that building? Uh, I Well, I don't know. I mean, it obviously depends on the, the backups and uh, where, you know, where, if there was a, by what means would it vaporize whatever was in the vault and whether the energy needed for that could be provided by some kind of independent power supply. It did make me think, this is quite a neat bit of home automation because I'm kind of interested in home <laughs> automation. And obviously they had sufficient sensors in place to be able to tell that they had evacuated the building and then they could run a series shortcut to say, don't blow, don't blow up the vault or at least cancel the timer to blow up the vault. But if any of the motion detectors te- te- checks any movement, then they can restart the timer. And yeah, it did... It did make me think, oh, right, I wonder if I could uh, simulate that using a couple of home pods and uh, some high explosives, but I probably won't. Were they motion detectors? Could it have been could something else have triggered it off? Could could it? Well, it know, could have been anything. It's, it, it, in, yeah. it's presence. It's presence sensing, isn't it? I mean, it's it is the the home automation connection was partly because I was thinking about presence sensing and how difficult that actually is to do well. Because oh, yeah. Um, you know, you, you you obviously very easy and reliable to put a sensor on the door, tell that the door's open and closed, but you need to know if someone's gone through it. And you can detect motion, and that's fine. But then 
if you want your lights to come on when someone is moving in order to have light in the room when they're there well the problem is as soon as you sit down at your desk and stop moving the lights go off i used to work in an office where this happened all the time and it's incredibly annoying and so there's all sorts of new stuff coming onto the market now it's quite it's quite exciting does things like counting you as you go into the room as you go out um or does stuff by actual heat sensing or there's even now stuff becoming available that detects presence by measuring perturbations within the wi-fi signal within your home which is kind of pretty fantastic but probably isn't how they would have done it in 1996 no, no, I, I think that's probably a safe bet. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, once again, it's like, okay, sure. We cut power and they've got backups. All right, that's fair enough. I mean, you got a lot of computer systems, you have backups. But for example, a hospital in the United States is required by law to have generators. Fair enough. And they're required to kick on in 10 seconds. But generators take gas. And so they're also required by law to have enough gas to power the hospital generators for 96 hours. What happens after that? I mean, that's all that they could have done in this building. They could have had backup generators and they've got to be running on some sort of expendable fuel. What happens when this building powers down? What if not everything is on the generator? What if the motion sensors aren't? Well, surely what happens when what happens when the building powers down is whatever's in the vault gets vaporized using the energy from whatever the independent power source is. Seems fair. Do you think they just blow it up, blow it up if the power gets cut to the building? Yes. Possible. It's possible. It it just was kind of, I'm sure we, I'm sure the team, and okay, now let's go back on this one. Team bugs. That's their wheelhouse. That's what they do. That's what you hire them to do. Overcome impossible technological solutions and vaults. Yeah, they don't do that in this episode. They just walk away from it. At at one point, Beckett says to Ross, "Well, you got to get us into that vault." And yeah, I'm I'm working on it. And then that's the end of it. They they never pursue that avenue at all. And it's like, yeah, that that's see now if the Bureau of Weapons Technology had run this raid and this had happened, and then they'd called in Ross and the team. That would have made perfect sense. It's like, I don't know. Oh, I do want to add one thing that I thought was interesting about Beckett, because we've never really kind of got a good feel for what Beckett's background. I mean, he was obviously a spook, but what what did he do in that agency? I thought it was interesting when they put him to work on that mine, and his response was, I cut my teeth diffusing these or something, something to that effect which makes me think Beckett was more of a field man. Yeah. Then, then perhaps I had previously thought, uh, I, di- I didn't think he wasn't in the field. It's just, I don't know. He, he's got such a weird combination of technology background and, and spy background that this is the first time he really seemed competent to the spy. And I don't mean that in a, in a, a bad way. It's not that he's been incompetent. It's just, this is the first kind of government agent training behavior that he's shown the rest of it is you know the same thing ed does the same thing ron's does uh it is it, kind of okay i guess we shouldn't uh we shouldn't skip over the line you drive like a man at least for calling out calling out things from the 1990s that uh so where was that line i missed it roland said that to roz 
when they oh, were following right. Malik, yeah. I believe. And she says, you drive like a man. And she, I forgot what her exact response was. Uh, is that a problem or something like that? And he says, he said, it's still bad or something like that. It's, it's driving still bad or something of that nature or terrifying. Or, But it just was like, wow. Okay. It was the 90s. I would have expected that in the 60s. Uh, maybe the 70s, but uh, 90s, no. Uh, I have run across everything I think I have, uh, and I know that was a lot of picking on it. I I did actually enjoy it, but man, it did not make a lot of sense. And I guess this is Stephen Gallagher's, so this is supposed to be one of the good ones. Um, I think we've had better this season. I definitely think we've had better. Um, I mean, the opener, I, I thought was a cracker, just, you know, to to pick one. Mm. Um, two-parter in space as i recall right yeah yeah so that that first that first two-parter i think the the one that followed it was pretty good bit of a bit of a decline after that and yeah i had my hopes pinned on stephen gallagher putting putting something a bit more solid together than this but like you i didn't think it was terrible i think it may have been partly my expectations and hopes that uh, we were we were getting something a bit more substantial as we as we kind of get it get into the end game of this series because we have one more episode that's not by Gallagher coming up next week and then we have the the season finale which is a two-parter written by Gallagher I, I I think this I think what this episode suffered the most from is just this almost ridiculous level of complexity that has been introduced in this particular one. I mean, they've, they've had that before where, you know, the shortest path from is a to B and they go by way of B and C or C and D, but this one is, but I mean, path is a to B. They want a C D Z X Y B. (laughs) I mean, what, what you've talked, what you've talked about before is, is essentially explanations that are not so much, complicated as illogical ways of a- accomplishing something if you don't take into, a fa- into account the fact that they are the way of getting from set piece a to set piece b to set piece c rather than from in-world plot goal a and in-world plot goal b and so on and i i kind of forgive those when those set pieces are good enough but the the problem with this is there is unnecessary complexity in it, and we've now got too many characters whose motivations have become somewhat confused. And like you say, the real problems occur when our heroes themselves are not doing the things that they are supposed to be good at, and they are doing things they're not particularly supposed to be good at instead. Uh, well, let's hope he can turn it around here in the in the finale. Hopefully got the complexity out of the way and Jean Daniel's two-part finale, which I'm sure it will be a Jean Daniel two-part finale will be. Oh, I'm sure he's, I can't, I can't believe that I'm going to say this, but maybe it won't be so complicated despite the fact that it's a two-parter. I bet this is going to hit every letter of the alphabet before it gets to B. (laughs) Well, we'll see. I mean, we opened with a two-parter that did use its time well, actually structured itself cleverly in terms of being a two-parter. That was written by Colin Brake, who is the script consultant on this series. It could be that Jean-Daniel now having... 
returns to the position of the kind of standard arch baddie rather than the incarcerated arch baddie can just be the antagonist without there having to be some team who he is paying and that could bring a certain amount of simplicity back to the show that would give you know give it a bit of space to just get on with well i don't know having a few bigger explosions yeah i I, they were kind of lack on explosions in this episode too in one van one wall actually two walls and i mean when they shot through the van was kind of and it you know we i think what it comes down to we are there judging judging the show on its own terms i think it sets out to be a show with big impressive explosions in it and it doesn't set out to be a show that is i i either um terribly deep or deeply engaged with the kind of (laughs) satirical geopolitical aspects of things so let's have some good explosions at least yes better explosions maybe niobium five will explode real good (laughs) that's bound to be what it is it's bound to be a big explosion so uh, no so here's my question will his cousin be back his cousin now i've forgotten it was his brother he was his brother who was killed uh, it was in, in whirling Puffs, dervish it? it was whirling dervish his brother his cousin was the uh the guy that oh, hired yes. them yes and i can't think of the actor's right. name off the top of my head but uh yes i'd forgotten there was that that other relative and and um he does have that strange line in this episode about only rats and insects eating their young when he kills yeah her dad instead of yeah so I, think, and I, I think that's supposed to tell us something about his character but god knows what i think that what that's telling us is that he was lying when he said there's no profit and revenge to roz he wants revenge okay and he's going to avenge he's going to avenge their death um i did think that was a very strange scene uh you know daughter is wounded and so well i guess we obviously between us men we've decided that she needs to die so dad's going to be the nice guy and go out and kill his own daughter so that 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 was a strange sequence and then john danielle killing him instead of the daughter it's a strange sequence because we didn't know what john danielle's intention was in the first place anyway right and we don't know we don't know what uh i've forgotten his name again the dad newman dr newman Newman. we didn't we didn't know what his his intention was there either because my immediate interpretation of why he was stepping in and saying, oh, let me do it, was because he was going to, in some way, try and bluff Jean Daniel. Yeah, I thought he was going to try to protect the daughter. I thought his assumption was that Jean Daniel was going to kill her and that he was going to, like, try to, I don't know, save her in some way instead of what he ended up doing, which was looking like he was about to kill her. Well, which he may may not have been doing because that could have been part of the bluff. I mean, that's the problem with the way that played yeah. out. Again, not super duper direction, in my opinion, from Andrew Grieve. Yeah. And, you know, if if Sean Danielle is willing to leave Cassandra behind as a witness, he could have just driven off and left Newman behind as well. So there were two witnesses to take the fall. I, I'm surprised he didn't kill her. I'm surprised he didn't kill Cassandra as well. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that likes to leave a lot of loose ends. So what is the next episode? 
So the next episode is Newton's Run. Oh, Newton, another physicist. Mm. Hmm. Is the the one after that Einstein's dog, by any chance? No, the one after that is the Bureau of Weapons, so... Ah, uh, uh, okay. Uh, uh, uh. It's a so very short run of, of physicists, exactly, yes. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> they don't get enough TV episodes named after them. <laughs> Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fusion Patrol, we hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol or buymeacoffee.com slash fusion patrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently doing a special series on Season 2 of Babylon 5. There's over a decade of previous episodes available at fusionpatrol.com. Come join the conversation on our website or Twitter. You can also find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusion patrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.